I just want to say it's a joy to be with you. Um, I was thinking back just this past week, this month of October was the seventh year anniversary from when I stood in this pulpit. Seven years ago in November, we started the church and Josh was gracious enough the month before to allow me to finish a series on the five solas and their fellowship has meant um, truly um, great things in my own heart and life. And then a week or so later on a Sunday, they um, had us in and celebrated the start of the church. They've been truly a blessing along the way, you know, and um, I just thank God for them and for the uh, opportunity and privilege it is to stand in this pulpit um, once again. Thankful for all of you and hope that in some way that this will become a blessing for you as well. You know, seven years ago, it was a lonely time in our life. So it was a tremendous blessing to have other people come alongside us, uphold us in some ways, receive counsel. And in some part, as Justin said, this, that that's kind of the goal of this conference, that it would be sustained not only for the propagation of the gospel, um, but for fellowship and, um, and godly brotherhood particularly. So I pray that that is um, part of the fruit, at least, that, that is produced today as we gather together. That this wouldn't be the end of our meeting time. This wouldn't be the, you know, that this wouldn't be the only fellowship for the next year, you know. I want you to know that I'll make myself available, and we at Christ Bible make ourselves available um, for you as churches. Um, to come alongside and help in any capacity. Not to say that we have all of it figured out, but if nothing, we'll pray through it together and trust the Lord to do great and mighty things. So I truly thank God for what he's accomplishing here. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. While you turn there, I'll go ahead and kind of give you a roadmap as to where we're going. For those of you who like to take notes and an outline, I'm going to go ahead and give you that because chances are about a third of the way in, I'm going to totally abandon it. So um, oftentimes they overlap, but for you um, who like that kind of thing, I'm just going to let you know so that you know that I had one. Um, we'll begin with an introduction. Essentially, the argument I'm going to make is that Christ is all sufficient. And Paul is going to move in Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 6 from that introduction to instruction. And he's going to argue that if Christ is all-sufficient, then you too need to know that he's all-sufficient for salvation. Not only for salvation, but also for sanctification. So walk in him as you've received him. Number three, I'm going to give you an illustration. That illustration is going to be rooted and built up in him. And then we'll give some implication. And the implication of that is true change. We are new creatures in Christ, as has already been preached. But we're not just new in the beginning. We're new all throughout the Christian life. And God produces change as we walk in Him. And particularly in this text, that change is going to be manifested in thanksgiving. So, introduction, instruction, illustration, and implication. And then we'll make a short application, I promise. Um, if you don't mind to just kind of entertain me here, it's our pattern at the church to stand for the reading of God's word. And everybody has different traditions, but it'll help me to keep that pattern. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 6, we read these words. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we cast ourselves at your feet 100% on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we enter in boldly through the throne room of grace, but not on any, on any pretense. Father, we recognize that if any boldness is to come, it's only because Christ has paved the way. So, Lord, we come boldly, yet I pray that we all come humbly to that throne room, expecting you to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Father. We know that if anything will be accomplished, it will be accomplished solely on your kindness 
and your grace. And we are a people this morning, this afternoon, Father, that need more grace. So, Father, I'm reminded of that wonderful verse, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also freely give us all things? So, Father, we, we are arguing here from the greater to the lesser. We know that if You gave us Christ, then we're asking You, Father, for these things, these all things, that You'd continue to extend more grace, that You would pour it out on us, Father, in full measure, that Your Spirit would rule and reign in our hearts, Father, and that You would produce in us a humble and a submissive spirit, and that You may accomplish um, eternal and invaluable things, Father, um, as we gather together. Lord, may we, may we lift up Christ and magnify His name, um, Father, or may we do nothing at all. Father, You know how I deal with pride, and You know how I love glory. Father, may, may You not allow me to take it from Your Son. God, may you help us to be faithful to the text. May you help us to be faithful to Christ. And may you receive all the honor and all the glory that is due your name. Father, if not, in this conference or any of these churches, even inch towards that, Father, may, you, may the light go out quickly. You chastise your people and bring us back. So, Father, may we move forward with full faith and assurance um, that we rest in Christ and Christ alone, not in our own strength, wisdom, or intellect. Let us be faithful to Him. Father, we commend this time to You now. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. Thank you. One faithful Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs once said, quote, God the Father is infinitely satisfied in Christ. He is all in all to God. Surely if Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of the Father, much more then is He an object sufficient for the satisfaction of every soul. I think only the Apostle Paul could have said it better. Philippians 3.3 3. He goes on about his life before and after Christ. And he says these words, For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, but what things were gained to me, he says, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And if it wasn't for the Son of God, I would think Paul said it perfectly. But I think our Lord says it even better when He says these words, For without me, you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, it's my um, tremendous joy this afternoon. I mean, uh, Josh, uh, Justin uh, gave me this text and he recommended it to me. By no way was I bound to this. Um, but he recommended Colossians after we had bounced around um, the theme of the conference. And he said, what about Colossians 2, 6, and 7? I read the text and I was like a kid in a candy store, you know. Um, it is my tremendous joy um, to present to you this afternoon, um, I guess, the theme of being deeply rooted in Christ. Or we may say, setting before you the all-sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that may sound simple to some of you. I mean, we're here, we're, you know, upholding a theological tradition that is extremely deep, yet you may think that it is somewhat surface level together, um, uh, somewhat surface level today. Um, yet, because what you've heard throughout this morning and as a, as a string that is tying all of these texts together has been in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And in this sermon, I have nothing else to give you except Christ. And while that may sound elementary and we understand that there are other things to press on towards and to move on. But as Paul says in 
um, his one of his letters to the church at Corinth. If we don't build on any, if we build on anything else other than Christ, then we essentially labor in in vain. And I would encourage us not to think so highly of ourselves that we have progressed beyond him. Dare I say that none of us are above our brothers and sisters here in Colossae. We must not forget that the congregation of God's people, regardless of geographical or historical location, has always been and will always be the perfect environment for spiritual warfare. Church, if that's what you want to call it, is more than a meeting. It's far more than a sermon. It's definitely more than an intellectual exercise or a religious um, activity. It's the place where Christ dwells among his people. He seeks to make himself uniquely known. He owns it all, the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Yet what we know, too, is that God has a special people for himself. And when they gather together in a symbol, we have language within Scripture that tells us that Christ is uniquely publicly present in the preaching of God's word, in the table, in baptism, in the fellowship of the saints, and even in things like church discipline as we extend love one to another. That this is where the gospel is to be rightly proclaimed. The sacraments are to be properly administrated. And God's people are to be loved one by another. Um, where else would Satan, the devil, the world, the flesh love to um, aim its attack I know that we like to focus upon the world and, and the debauchery that's going on in the economy and think of the most godless places throughout um, the world. In the Islamic territory or in the strip club down the street or whatever, we love to stand up and rail upon that because we get amens. But when you study scripture, what you find is that the most wicked places on planet earth that will receive the greatest condemnation are made of stained glass windows and religious exercise. Read the book of Revelation. I mean, sin is overwhelming the church. And Satan and his activity is in some way present there. Jesus Christ stands there in Laodicea outside the church, totally out of fellowship. And you have a church that precedes it um, that has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. It's mechanical. This is the story of the nation of Israel under the old covenant as well. Um, thus, we may not think so, we should not think so highly of ourselves. That we are, that we have it all together, that we uh, have everything ironed out, that our doctrine is perfect and everyone else is just going to hell in a handbasket and they need to reform. You know? Um, we need to wake up to the reality that we may be walking into churches tomorrow and there may be people there that have been with us for years and are without Christ. And if they're not without Christ in salvation, they've been out without Christ. They've been they've been without walking with Christ for a long time now, you know, and that there needs to be a revival of the preaching of Christ in our churches. Everything must be built upon that. And when we wake up on the Lord's day tomorrow and we rise on Monday morning, we must be aware that spiritual warfare, that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that Paul tells us that he's an angel of light and has minions um, who are masquerading around as ministers of righteousness, and that Christ needs to be preached. And he needs to be preached not only for man's salvation, but also because he is the foundation, too, of our sanctification. But to give you a little context, Colossae here, Paul writes, to a Roman-occupied city, in Asia, that Paul had never actually visited. But the Lord had burdened his heart for this precious people. Chapter 1, we read of the faith of this community, that it was so influential that it had crossed borders and made it into Paul's ears, yet more importantly, into Paul's heart. Chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know, verse number 1, what a great conflict and struggle that I have for you. That in this letter, he expresses to a people whom he does not know his desire, his love, and his care. For the church, the assembly at Colossae. And I think it's important to remember at this point that when we read these letters, um, that Paul's not simply writing for writing's sake. Um, this is not a theological treatise and him waxing eloquent on the doctrine of Christ to impress his peers. He's not amidst an academic exercise. This isn't his final dissertation for a PhD. 
He's not primarily a seminarian, a philosopher, or a noted author. Well, there's places for all of those things. This man's an apostle. He's a shepherd at heart. Thus, Paul is shepherding these assemblies by the leadership of the Spirit of God, and he does so according to their need. That God, yes, inspires the apostles to write the scriptures, but through God's providence, he provokes them to the writings for a particular reason. That this is, that he writes to Colossae because there's a point to it. I mean, it seems that wolves are creeping in. Most Christians throughout history of the church believe that what we have here, um, and, and I would agree that what we have contained in the background of, of the book of uh, Colossians and the people that are here at Colossae um, are a heretical group known as the Gnostics. And I don't have a whole lot of time to go into the depths of, of the heretical teaching that are there. Just know that, 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 that they were extremely deceptive. And they had some fundamental principles that would undergird, that would, that would cause them to move in. That they weren't a religious um, group that were identified inherently as the Gnostics. What they would do is they would come into an already existing religion, either Judaism or Christianity in the early New Testament church. And prior to that, and they would attach on to it. And those fundamental principles that they would bring with them of human philosophy, of asceticism, of spiritual mysticism, of a higher knowledge, of religious legalism. They, 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 would, they would come in and they would attach themselves to it, retaining the identity of the religion, yet the, the, the heresy would pervade, um, for example, Christianity. By the end of it, the second, third century, they're denying the deity of Christ, that he didn't truly come in the flesh, um, that he was an emanation or a, 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 a somewhat of an, a demigod, a demiurge that had, that had been uh, sent by God of the New Testament and that the God of the Old Testament wasn't even truly God. Um, he was evil because he created the world and so forth and so on. Yet at the same time, uh, many people would be just consumed in it and believed that it was true Christianity. Why? Because they knew how to speak Christianese and they spoke it fluently, you know, um, and it reeked of philosophy. Paul deals with that in Colossians 2 verse 8, human opinion, the mind of man. It reeked of religious legalism. That It's probably Judaistic Gnosticism that's coming in, a sect of Jews um, who have come in and retained some identity with Judaism. So some of the old covenant gleanings they would have retained and people would have looked and said, these are Jews. But there's Gnosticism underneath it that reeked, it reeked of religious legalism. It reeked of spiritual, and, the, the, and Paul speaks of the legalism in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It reeked of <clears throat> spiritual mysticism, <clears throat> visions, dreams, angelic visits, um, higher knowledge that came from an external source other than God. Paul deals with that in 2, 18 and 19. It reeked of pietistic asceticism, self-denial, self-abasement, self-mutilation. Paul speaks of that in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. But the one thing that it lacked <coughs> was the all-sufficiency of Christ. And we need to listen. You know, at one point I wanted to say they lacked Christ. And I think the Christians who rightly understand the gospel, they would know that that's true. But in some sense, they did not deny Christ. Right? So the danger presented at Colossae is not a danger of abandoning Christ altogether. Um, externally. But adding something to Christ's work. And making it necessary for salvation or for sanctification. Let me put it this way. Paul argues in Galatians 5.1 this. <clears throat> for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You, he says this, to, Galatia, to the church at Galatia, you, you sir, you man, you church, are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You can imagine as that's being read to Galatia, they're looking at each other, whoa. You know, like all we did was add circumcision. But Paul argues that there is a way to retain some vestige of Christ in your lives and serve Him under an external banner called Christianity, yet lose Him altogether. Does that scare you to death? You know? Like it does me. It does me. 
Right? Because to add anything, something, anything to his person, his work, his character, his nature, to add even one thing, something as seemingly minuscule as circumcision, something that they had always done, something that they want to retain, to add it to Christ and his work is to essentially believe that Christ's work is insufficient to save. Either Christ is everything, men, or Christ is nothing. That's the argument. And this needs to be emphasized not only to Colossae, but today. Why? Because we're not above them. Just because you have Christ's name on your church, just because you speak Christianese fluently, just because you know salvation and the term justification and glorification and supralapsarianism, and you know how to wax eloquent with the best of them and theologize and philosophize and have the, the, the best debates does not mean that you are serving Christ at all. That if those things aren't provoked in the fruit of your relationship with Jesus Christ, then what you're doing is you're building up um, a, 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 a kingdom of your own. You're, you're building up a, a ministry of your own resting upon your own strength. Um, building upon your own foundation. Paul understands the great danger and the gravity of this. Thus his heart is moved for Colossae. Either this, this heresy, this group is moving, surging towards them or they've already creeped in. Thus Paul writes, by the providence and the supernatural um, working of the Spirit of God, he's not just waxing eloquent, he wants to shepherd the hearts and the congregation here at Colossae. Thus he commends his heart to them. And he begins chapter 1 through two, uh, uh, verse number 5 and he just settles the debate. <laughs> You know, there's no Gnostic going to read this and be able to ascribe to this statement of faith when it's said and done. He makes it clear. Paul settles the question of Christ's deity. Paul sets Jesus Christ for as the one who is God in chapter 1, verse 15. That he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Listen, Christ is God. And he created all things. Paul settles the question of the goal and purpose of life. 117, all things were created through him and for him. Paul settles the question as to his sovereignty. 118, he's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. He's active in the affairs of men. He goes on to set him forth as the sustainer of all life. The Apostle Paul, in response to the Gnostic heretics that are invading the church and his love for this brethren, sets forth some of the highest Christology you'll find in all of the New Testament church. And we have been blessed forevermore as a result of it. And how are we partakers of all of this? 119, for it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Paul sets forth Jesus Christ at Colossae and I set Jesus Christ forth to you today at Shepherd's Rock Bible Church as the storehouse of all treasure. If you will find anything of value in this life, you will only find it in Jesus Christ. And when you have Christ, you have everything. Christ's desire is an introduction. Christ, uh, Paul's desire for this small band of believers is not to be deterred by men, not to be convinced by novelty, but a renewal in the reality that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And that's my desire for you. Thus, he says, therefore, every person who's ever listened to any reform that when you come to that you need to know what therefore is therefore and it's therefore because now he's going to move from that theological foundation he's going to say like if you believe that then this is what is required of you there's a moral imperative in this okay this is a command so walk in him so after he introduces Christ and his all-sufficiency, he instructs the church there um, to, let's read it, verse number 6. As you therefore, therefore as you have received Christ, that he just expounded, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, so walk in him. If you've received him and he's all-sufficient for salvation, then you need to recognize that he too is all sufficient for sanctification or the Christian walk and you are commanded to walk in Him. 
Paul's not here to preach the gospel to this church in the sense that it is an evangelistic meeting. No doubt people could get saved when you preach Colossians 1, though. But that's not Paul's point. This is Paul exhorting these believers to recall their spiritual birth, that new birth that we just heard of. And to know that the key to a faithful walk can be found in it. That when you come to Christ and receive Him, you have contained within that everything that you ever need to make the Christian walk faithful. How so? Because when you come to Christ, you have Christ. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When you come to Christ, you get Christ and you get every spiritual blessing in Christ. 2 Peter 1.2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. And to godliness. In Christ. God has granted you. If you are in him. And have came to him. By faith and repentance. Everything that you need for salvation. But also everything that you need. To walk a faithful Christian life. That Christ is not only sufficient. Men and women. To get you out of hell and into heaven. He is sufficient to aid you. In overcoming and persevering. Even unto the end. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we see the imperative that because we are saved, and this needs to be said, there's a false gospel going around, and, and I know that, 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 that many propagate it, and they, they do it unknowingly, and even with sincerity, but the reality is that, 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 that a salvation that is, is simply a salvation by profession of faith, apart from any life that is devoted to, to Him, um, is, a, is a failure at a gospel. Um, that once a man is saved, God saves us for a purpose. He has an aim in us and for us. And that, that because He saves us, He saves us from a sin, Peter says, to bring us to God. And that we are to live our lives out. There's a moral imperative. So to pretend like you can make a profession of faith and then just live a, a godless life like, like you desire. Yet you're still hoping, but, but you still have full assurance that Johnny saved because uh, 20 years ago he prayed a prayer. Um, is, 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 is nowhere in Scripture. You don't meet Christians like that, you know? Um, that when a person is saved, God calls them to walk. And God empowers them to walk faithfully. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That just as we were received Him, we are to walk in Him. How? By looking unto Jesus. As we run our race, we are to look to that perfecter and author of our faith. It's hard to find a clear text in the necessity, that speaks of the necessity of living a life in constant dependence upon Christ. The Christian life is to be Christ-centered. Not only are you to look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, but you are to look unto Him, running your race as the author and finisher of your faith. If you will make it to heaven by the grace of the new birth, then you will persevere to the end because you're looking unto Him. So you're to walk. You're to walk. It's a euphemism for the life of a Christian. Yet the most important thing in that is not just the command to walk. But the modifier there, that you are to walk in Him. That it's not just enough to stay active. It's not just enough to progress. It's not just enough to move. It's not enough just to flail your arms so that somebody thinks you're alive. You're to walk in Him. That means that your Christian walk is to be affected by Jesus Christ. It's a different walk than previous. We've heard that as well. Why? Because of Christ. Because you've looked and because you're continually looking. It's a walk not only affected by Him, but it's affected by Him because we walk conducted in Him. Our behavior is conducted in Him. Quote, in Him, in Christ. We've heard it in almost every sermon today. It's a constant theme, particularly of Paul. But also of Christ, speaking of our position in Him. The nature of the Christian life 
is to be in him from start to finish. Now, throughout the nature of the Christian church, Christians have, have you know, um, utilized terms to describe the Christian life that can be helpful for us. You know, Trinity. It's not a Bible word, right? But it's a Bible thing. <laughs> you know, God's a triune God. And, and, and Jesus Christ, God the Father, condescends to us in His Word, speaking to us as a father to His children to, to explain inexplainable things. And we just rattle it around in our brains for 2,000 centuries or for 2,000 years, and really even beyond that, trying to figure out um, this, this, this uh, in, incalculable, um, inexhaustible knowledge of God. So, what Christians have done is, is try to organize our thoughts. To think on Christ more accurately. So we, we coin terms like the Trinity or the triune God. Speaking of the triune nature of uh, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's helpful for us to think on our Father and His work in and through us. Christians throughout the ages um, have tried to explain our life with Christ and in Christ in different ways. Our union with Christ, right? In Him speaks of our union with Christ. We are united with Him. Paul speaks of it in the death, burial, and in His resurrection. When we come to Christ, we are, we are in Him. Positionally. It means our position is in Him. But another way that Christians that I have found helpful to think about it is, is that the union, our union with Christ throughout um, has been termed legal and vital. Legal and vital. Many New Testament dry, uh, writers drive home the reality of our legal standing with God. In other words, we're justified by faith. We're right before Him now. We're forgiven, as was spoken of earlier. We're standing in Him from an eternal perspective. Our sins are forgiven and His righteousness is accredited to our account from a legal perspective. The judge of all the earth won't count it against us. Colossians 2.13 even says that. I love this. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. I love this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. Like what a joy that should produce in us. We're legally forgiven. We'll stand at the bar of God one day, complete in Christ, because we have past tense been absolved from all accountability of our sins as they've been placed on Christ and we've been accredited His righteousness. We stand with and truly in Christ legally. We're positioned in Him and thus we're treated by the Father as Him because we're in Him. Again, this is what we refer to as a legal union. Yet at the same time, I think we all understand that. But I don't know that we necessarily understand a vital union. And what I mean by that is a lively union. In other words, there's a practical union of the Christ that saves us and His church now. That we are in Him legally, but we are too in Him vitally. Meaning that Christ is truly with us. And in us, working through us by His Spirit, united to us both in body and soul, working in us to make us more like His Son. That, and I think Baptists are probably the worst for this. I mean, it's just academic, it's intellectual on many days. We've subjugated the, the, the Lord's table to just a piece of bread and juice, a symbol, a memory, something that we do, you know? Um, baptism doesn't mean necessarily much of anything anymore. It's just a symbol. It's just a memory. We don't try to practice church discipline. I mean, everything's mechanical. It's activity. It's this or that. And it's as if, you know, we're just living this life until Jesus comes and then finally we'll be alive. Listen, church, Jesus saved you to be alive now. Christ is present with us. He is, we are to be lively as he lives in us. That there is a truth, that Christ is really with us. And that's the language of Scripture. That as you study the nature of the New Testament church, what you find is when God's people come together, Christ is present. 
Or two or three, there I am in the midst of church discipline. Galatians chapter 3, he was publicly portrayed to you. He never went to Galatia. Well, then how did he manifest himself through the preaching of God's word? He was there. The bread and the cup, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He shares and communes with his people. His presence is made known in his body and his blood. Yes, we, we're, not to go nearly as, we're not to go as far as the Catholics or the Lutherans who, who speak of a presence in the cup that we think is unbiblical. But we, we, but we must know that He is here. He is there. Revelation 2 and 3. He is walking among the candlesticks even now. He is here with us. He is here in us. And we are to live in Him. You know? To illustrate the difference between a legal and a vital union, we might illustrate it by, by a marriage. I remember getting what seems like eons ago now married. Fifteen years ago, I think. My wife will correct me later if it's not. Um, but I remember going downtown some time ago and getting a marriage certificate. Um, we walked into the county clerk and pulled our card out and said, we're getting married. Um, they said, we don't take credit. <laughs> It was so funny. We got together and we're just pulling dollars out of our pockets. Like going out and getting change. True story. Change out of the uh, out of the car to try to pay for this marriage license. And we come back in and pour quarters out on the, uh, on the thing. And they, they must have thought this is going to last a while. You know. Um, we got that marriage license. And the night before during practice, if I'm not mistaken, my pastor signed it. You know, legally we were married. Um... According to the court of law and the judicial system in the state of America, or the state of Tennessee, um, we were as good as done, you know. Um, if I would have died that day, she would have got it all. It wouldn't have been much, but she would have got it all. And if I would have died that day, she would have been in debt a lot, <laughs> you know. Um, it didn't matter how long we were together, she was in me and I was in her legally. Um, but nothing's ever changed me so much than the last 15 years of being with her vitally. The marriage hadn't been consummated yet. We hadn't spent so much social, emotional, um, physical, spiritual time together. As we have fellowshiped over the last 15 years, I've become like her. She's become like me. And we have produced little mini-me's that share in both likeness um, and weakness as well as strength. That our life together began then. And we were, we were, we were, we were legally bound as, as in one another. But that during this life together, we have shared in this fellowship that has changed both of us. Some ways good. Some ways not so much. One of the dangers of being a, a, a fellowship, Paul even argues, right? Bad uh, company corrupts good morals. Um, that, that when you're with other people who are corrupt, that that fellowship changes you, you know, that, that you're not generally strong enough to withhold the crowd. I know that we like to think of ourselves as super spiritual and we can handle it and we can watch and we can hear and we can be with whoever, you know, and even argue it's an evangelistic endeavor. Not recognizing that a month later I'm saying things that I never would have, doing things that I never thought I would. Why? For, 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 the, sake of, um, for, for the sake of wanting to be like, to be honest with you. You know? That rarely is it a true evangelistic endeavor. But we want to fit in, we want to be liked, and we want a fellowship. Why? Because we were made to belong to something. The problem is, is that you belong to God. And He deserves you. And the great thing about a lively union with Him is that in His utter perfection and His love for you, you don't get pulled down and you don't pull the perfect one down, but He pulls, up, he pulls you up to be like Him. That in this lively union, as you are in Him and practically united, you are changed. This is where change happens for the glory of God. This is where his lifeblood practically um, flows throughout you and you are made more like him spiritually. Second Peter 1, earlier we read verse number 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But we didn't read the next part. How were all things that pertain to life and godliness extended to us or to his children through the knowledge of him, he says, who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
That through these, what? Great impression promises and the knowledge of God. That through these, you may be partakers of His divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The divine nature of Christ is imparted to God's people through those precious promises and the knowledge of Him, Christ, who called us. Colossians 1, 9, this is exactly what Paul prays for in the first chapter. He said, this is why I'm writing to you guys. Ever since I heard about you, like God just provoked my spirit to pray for you. And he says that in 1, 9. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why, Paul? That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened in love. Well, you read earlier in Ephesians. I don't. Even, I think it was read earlier in Ephesians, chapter three, and I believe it's verse number seventeen. It's a similar prayer. That I think Brother Vern read earlier. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints that is the width and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you are to walk in Him. And that, that walk is a real walk with Him and in Him. And as you walk in Him and He walks and, and, and dwells in you. As you increase your knowledge of Him. And what happens is fruit is produced as He lives in and through you. So that your walk is affected. How do you do that? By looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. How does one do that? By filling himself with the knowledge of God. But it's even more than that. It's not just knowledge. You know? Um, Pharisees have knowledge. So what's different? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Um, the text says, walk in Him as you've received Him. How did they receive Him? Galatians 3 verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This I only want to learn from you. He said, I just want to know one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham Believed God that it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is the conversation. And they're just, they're lost. They're in legalistic, um, left field. <clears throat> they're, they're applying circumcision to salvation. And Paul just looks at them and says, you're fools, guys. You ever looked at somebody, sit down with them in counseling or, or had a son or a daughter. And you looked at them and you said, you know, years ago, like you started well. You know, like what changed along the way? Um, he pulls them back as, as, as Paul does in Colossae. And he says that the way you're going to sustain your walk is, is to look back. What does um, what he preach to the church at Ephesus in Revelation? You've lost your first love. What do you need to do? Remember the first things. Go back. Paul's consistently, Christ is consistently, John consistently says that, that as Peter does, all things that you need for life and godliness are contained in that conversion. Why? Because in that you had Christ. Yet for some reason you've moved on from that. Did you start like that, he says? Why are you moving away from that? Were you saved by the works of the law? Were you saved by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? You know? Were you saved by human philosophy? Were you saved because of self-denial? Were you saved because of, 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 of legalism? This or that? Were you saved by your own strength? Then turn to Christ. Walk in Christ. How did you receive Him? By faith. Grace was extended because you believed. Believe on Him now is what He's calling them back to. How will you continue to live in Him? By the Spirit and by the hearing of faith. 
That the knowledge that is received cannot be a knowledge that lies upon a dead conscience, but this be a knowledge that is enlivened by the grace of God as it is received and gripped by faith. It is enabled by the Spirit of God. Jesus says in John 6 and 48, I'm the bread of life. And they just scratch their heads. <laughs> they think about the wilderness. He calls them back to that. Verse number 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him, I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of this world. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And in verse 56, he says this, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And he's not literally. I mean, we're to walk away with the doctrine of transubstantiation or cannibalism as some of the New Testament pagans did. They looked and they said, um, who are these people that eat their uh, leader's blood or uh, flesh and drink his blood? No, Jesus here is speaking of faith. You know? That whenever I, I, I ingested that beautiful sub earlier today... Um, with all of the bread, all of the, the meat, all of the veg, everything that went together there, it became a part of me. It's becoming a part of me now. You know, in one hour, you won't be able to separate it from me. You know, that when you take in things into your body, it becomes you in some sense where it is indistinguishable. And as the knowledge of God for the believer after he receives Christ is to continually feed on Christ throughout his life such that it is indistinguishable. It is, it is a part of him. It isn't compartmentalized. They look and they say, that is a Christian. He's not just a Christian here and a Christian there. He is a Christ follower. He is, a, he is becoming like Christ. Why? Because, because the knowledge is being consumed in faith. It is becoming a part of Him. And as we fellowship with God through His Word, that's exactly what happens. Um, thus we get the illustration, right? What does He say? How do you do that, Paul? How do you walk in Him? And He says, well, it's like this. It's like being rooted and built up in Him. Established in the faith, just as you were taught. So the command to walk in Him, how do we walk in Him? We walk in Him by faith and according to the Spirit of God. And it's like being rooted in Him. It speaks of strength. Remember, firm, the fixed, to establish, to cause a person or a thing to be thoroughly grounded. To build up, it's a, it gives the idea of a, of a building, that foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. That everything is to be built upon Him from there on. Everything's built upon that foundation. In a similar way, the rooted, uh, uh, the rooted in is, is, is this idea of... Uh, so, so, so that's how you fulfill the walk-in, right? The walk-in is the imperative. It's the command. How do you do that? You, you be rooted. Rooted here is, is not so much a command, but it describes the command. This is a, a, what we know as a passive participle. That you're commanded in this scenario to be passive. I know men here and I'm, you know, as a man myself, it's like, you know, God tells me I want to do something. I want to be active. I want to be responsible. I want to be the one that achieves it. Here, it's not like that in the Christian life. He says that there is a part of you that is actively to be passive. It can literally be you're, you're to be the, uh, the one rooted in him. Right. And that doesn't mean passive like today. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that you're just to be um, apathetic, indifferent, labile, uh, limp-wristed, weak man, you know. But the idea here is like, as is, 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 is was taught earlier, that, that, that Christ is the soil and you are rooted in Him. And all of your nourishment is to, be cut, uh, is to be absorbed up into the roots to strengthen it and to make it firm. Why? So that it can grow up and up and up and strong and produce fruit. That the tree receives all of its nourishment from the soil for growth into a mighty oak of usefulness to the glory of God. Something that is not rooted cannot be sustained. And thus it is not useful to produce any fruit. Even the lightest of fruit would, would destroy it. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ describes in John 15. As we, a great illustration of that is abiding in Christ. How? As a branch abides in the vine, he says, right? So Jesus in John 15 paints this picture of a branch just 
being put into the vine. And even if it was a foreign object, now the life of that vine is flowing through it. That it benefits from just resting passively in that vine. And as long as it stays in the vine, then life flows through and fruit is produced. That the command here is to rest in Christ. It is to abide, to dwell, to remain in Him. How do we do that though? That's abstract. It seems theoretical. It seems kind of uh, 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 ethereal. But, but He gives us some very concrete instruction in John chapter number 15 where He essentially says that if you abide in Me and My words abide in you. Remember Paul says... Increase in the knowledge of God. That you'll ask what you desire and it will be done for you. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as my, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Right? That God has designed a certain means, a primary means to minister Christ to our souls. For Him to be actively engaged, infusing life in and through us. And the primary means is the Word of God. What we have before us is a supernatural book. It's more than words on a page. It's more than just academic exercise. It is the very Word of God that was given from Genesis to Revelation, man, to show you Christ. That you may see Him in all of His glory. Like when you wake up in the morning and you sit down at night and you go to church and you see Him in the table, the bread and the cup, it preaches the gospel to you. You know? And you see Him there dead. You see Him there buried. You see Him there risen again. Ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And you're in Him. You know? Like that, 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 is, that is one of the primary ways that we fellowship with God. And as we fellowship with God, what He does is He imparts that divine nature to us. We become like Him. The longer we fellowship with Him in that vital union, I mean, we just start looking like Christ. You don't see it because part of that's humility. But people around you, your wife, like you'll be changed. Your children, they'll see the gospel in the way you love your wife like Christ loved the church. You'll glorify God. Why? Because you're reading the word. It's more than just words on a page. It's your life in some sense. It's your life's blood. It's as if you're in a hospital, you know, and you need to hook up. So you wake up and you go to the, the word of God that day. Why? Because you need sustenance. It's your daily bread. So, so eat it. It's your water. Uh, so, so drink it. You know, the problem is, is that our appetite wanes and our thirst goes and we, 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 we pursue the world. But the, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two edged sword. And it ministers Christ to us. First Thessalonians chapter number two speaks of the, 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 the wondrous working power of an almighty God. Second Corinthians 318. But we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Just as the spirit of the Lord. That God has designed the, the scriptures, the word of God to minister Christ to our souls. And that's how we change. Second Peter, again, chapter number one. We all want to change, don't we? Like every one of us. I don't care if you're a believer or not. You know? You may not like it. No, everybody comes into this world and they know they're wrong. They know something's wrong with them. They know something's wrong with the world. Life and death and this and that. They look in the mirror and they know they're not perfect. The question is... You know, what means are we going to use to change that? The Gnostics encourage a whole host of things. The world encourages a whole host of things. And God this morning, this afternoon presents to you, Christ. What satisfies your soul? Isaiah 55, ho, everyone thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He asks this question, why do you spend money on what's not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good. And let your soul delight in abundance. How? How does my soul delight itself in abundance? How? Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. It's like a conversation I had this week. You know? Somebody struggling with life. What are you feeding on? What are you drinking? What are you taking in? I just feel so Christ is so far from me. What are you feeding on? Where is Christ at? What well are you drinking from? 
You know? Because you're either being changed by the world or you're being changed by Christ. Why did Christ die? You ever ask that question? To save me and get me to heaven. No. 1 Peter 3.18, he cried to bring you to God. And his aim in this passage of Scripture in John 15 is to impart to you his nature. Colossians chapter 2, to impart to you his nature while you're here. To make you like him, to conform you to his image. John 15 and verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. He wants you to be happy, but He wants you to find that happiness in Him. The, the well that will not run dry. This water of life in which you will never thirst. And this bread in which you will never go hungry. And listen, that is not only for salvation. That is too for every day that you walk. And yet some of you come here. You know, intellectually or emotionally or physically, and you're filling your lives with anything and everything else, thinking that maybe Reformed theology or the doctrines of grace or these people can finally give me something that I yearn for. It's like a, it's like a husband, it's like a, like a woman or a man seeking just that satisfaction in someone else, and now they're on their fourth or fifth wife. You will not find it, friend. Your ultimate satisfaction can only be found in Christ. And when you find Him, He'll change you for the glory of God. And He'll make you into something that is incalculable and invaluable. And you'll be like that man who sold the entire field just so that he could have the treasure. Give me Christ. And let me die and be quickly forgotten. If I've got to live, then let me live as Paul. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That Christ may live in and through me. So we come to this and we see that Christ is all sufficient. Not only for salvation, but also for sanctification. Um, and that sanctification primarily happens as Christ lives in you through the Word of God. And as He fellowships with you, He changes you from one level of glory unto the other. So therefore, let us feed on Christ, church. And I, I, I guarantee you that thanksgiving, it's what the, the, the rest of the text says, overflowing with thanksgiving, with Eucharisto, with, with joy. Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Right? Didn't we hear that? Joyful. As you abide in me, my aim is joy. As you walk, as you have found him, as you walk in him, as you, as you received him, you'll be overflowing with thanksgiving. You'll be something in this world that it has not seen in a long time. And it will be the glory of Christ as, as, as you have the very joy of God. Is that what God is producing in your life through your... One of the, it's just one fruit, but the one of many that should be there, you know? As you, as you rise from your reading, does your wife, does your husband see the joy of Christ upon your soul and upon your countenance because you've just been fed by God and you've fellowshipped with Christ? I tell you, you get in His presence, you will not walk away the same. You will get up from your face and you will be a different man and a different woman. And that's what the Scriptures should do in your because that's where Christ is found. So let us find Him. Father, we thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. Thank You for the opportunity to preach and teach. And just pray, Father, that, um, that You do what You want with it. Father, I know what I want done with it. Father, I want You to take it into the depths of the hearts and the souls. I want You to do that in my own heart, Father. I don't know that I believe it like I ought. Father, Sermons are something I do. I don't know that they're something I live. And in part, I, Father, I'm, I'm sorry. I thank you for your patience and long-suffering. Because I don't know how to believe some days. So help me to find you. To fellowship with you. That you may impart that faith unto me. Help me to believe, Father, in my unbelief. Help me to rest in You. Help me not to labor in my own works. Help me not to lean on human philosophy and my own wisdom. Help me not to be a pragmatist. Help me to be dogmatic about the things You're dogmatic about. 
Help me to love Christ most of all. I will show me his glory. God, even I'll hide behind the veil so that I can just see the hem of his garment. Father, I need to be different. I need to be changed. These people need to be different. They need to be changed. They need to be made like Christ. So, Father, whatever that means, would you do it? We, we cast this at your feet and we put it in your hands, Father, because we don't know how. Father, we, um, we are incapable of accomplishing anything of eternal value. So, Father, we yield ourselves to you passively, resting in Christ, that you may use this today for whatever you desire, even if it's not what we thought it should be. Father, we trust you with this. In Christ's name.